message was given at Hope Church of Knoxville. For more information about Hope Church, please visit our website at hopeknox.com. A small detour, and um, my goal is to possibly go two chapters uh, in Acts and then go two chapters in Genesis and kind of rotate between those two so that um, we're not only hearing New Testament, we're also hearing the gospel according to the Old Testament as well. Um, So I'm trying to balance out Old Testament and New Testament, and since we gather um, only once on a Sunday morning, it's not possible to to be faithful to both of those. So I'm going to take a small detour because Acts is such a big book, and we're going to try to go through, um, after we make it through two chapters, then... We'll go back to Acts, or maybe three chapters and go back to Acts, and then we'll go back to Genesis and vice versa. So that is why I'm not leaving Acts permanently. This is just for a short period of time. Um, We had a request for Old Testament as well, so I wanted to balance those two out. But I'm going to go ahead and read for us from Genesis 1. And we'll start off on 1-1. We're going to read all the way into 2. So it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was out form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the water from waters. And He made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And he called the waters that were gathered together, he called the seas. And God saw that it was good. And God God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit in which there is seed, according to its kind on earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and the trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there, be light, or let, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from night, and let the signs, for, uh, the signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let the lights um, in the expanse of the heavens give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to, lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God left the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and to rule over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of heaven. So God created the sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every uh, winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful, multiply and fill the, uh, fill the waters of the sea and let the birds multiply on earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. 
Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heaven and over the livestock over all the earth and everything creeping that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female, and he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and everything living that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, every tree with its seed and its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast on the earth and to every bird of its heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given you every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because God rested from his work and had done in creation. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this passage. Thank you for giving us your word. I pray that your word will pierce our hearts today, that we will see what you intended for us to see from this passage today, that you will open our eyes and our ears, that this will not just be knowledge for us, but this will be something that we apply to our lives, that we'll be challenged to live more biblically because of it. That you'll give us a heart for your people and a heart for the nations as a result of this passage. Most supremely, Lord, I pray that you'll help us love Jesus more because of this passage. Be with us now as we examine your holy word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, as I was saying earlier, um, we all definitely saw in the news, and uh, it's nearly been on every channel, about the, the tragedy uh, in Charleston. Um, it's, it's unbelievable that uh, if, you, if you read the whole story and about how um, he set through half the Bible study and then um, does this great atrocity, and then um, all from the motive of racism. And it definitely should humble us, it should bring us to tears, it should break our hearts. Just uh, We should mourn with those and weep with those who are weeping in Charleston. Um, but also, it should point us to Christ, it should point us to God, it should cause us to ask the question. Whenever a great tragedy comes up, the natural question that a lot of people start asking is, where is God in the midst of this? Was God in control? Where was God through this all? You know, was he, did He not see this coming? How do, we, how do we answer this? Where is God when a great tragedy like this happens? When, when a 9-11 happens? When, when Hurricane Katrina happens? Where is God in the midst of this? When a great tsunami comes and many lose their lives? These men were gathering together for prayer and for Bible study. Where is God in the midst of this? I think from our passage today, we'll get to see a hope of where He was. I hope that not only whenever you, you watch this this past week, this story, but I hope uh, you also got to see the testimonies of the family when they confronted the killer. Um, it's pretty humbling. Uh, and I think it's a, it should be a challenge for us all. If you haven't got to see it, basically he's uh, being televised in a courtroom. And um, the whole family, each family member gets to address him and uh, let them know. And rather than responding in anger, uh, I imagine, obviously, they had anger, and I don't think anger would be a, an inappropriate response in a situation like this. But they said, rather than letting hate win, we want to let you know that we forgive you. 
Um, you stole something very valuable to us. You, you took someone very close to us. I'll never be able to see them again, but I forgive you. What a testimony of the gospel. Um, I mean, you don't... It's Rather than these people being irate and turning into another situation like Baltimore and people riding, these people are sharing the gospel. That because of what Christ has done in me, I forgive you. Um, it's incredible. This, that's how you overcome racism is by sharing the gospel and saying you are forgiven in Christ. But in light of this, where do these people find hope? Where do we see God in the midst of this all? Let's go to our passage. Uh, I'm sorry for the long section, but um, we're, we're gonna, I'm not going to go verse by verse through this. I imagine you'll think we're going to be here all day if we do this. But um, I'm going to try to take it thematically. I'm going to pull out key verses and key sections from this um, so we can see points that I think Moses was trying to draw our eyes to. But first of all, let's go to verse 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was out form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. You may be wanting and, and thinking and anticipating, Adam's getting ready to dive into all of the different points of view of creation, you know. Was it a literal 24 days? Was it days or ages? Was it a framework position? Uh, many of you may not have heard that. Was it theistic evolution? We're not going to get into that this week. We may get into it a little next week, but that uh, is not my goal in this section. But I do want to point out, and I do think it's important, but I think we need to draw some, some heavier things from this. But first of all, I want to show you that in creation, from the very first part of creation, all of the Trinity is at work. All three persons of the Trinity at work. The Father creates it. He, he is the one who starts, initiates all of creation. Then you see the Spirit hovers over the water. Then God speaks. Jesus is referred to as the Word of God. We see the Word of God, we see the Spirit, we see the Father. All three persons are involved in this plan. All three persons throughout Scripture are involved in the plan of redemption. So as early as, as Genesis 1, we see a trinity. We see the triune God working. You may think that uh, this, this idea of trinity, it's not that important. It's a theological term. It's just it's jargon people use for, for classrooms. You know, we don't, we don't really need the Trinity. It's not that important. It's just theological language that causes division. But let me tell you this. The Trinity is extremely important. It's more than just theological jargon. It's not just a word that we use. The word is actually never used in Scripture, but it was a word that came about to fight off heresy, to fight off false teaching. Do you know that the first several councils of the church, so all these believers gather together, and the debate was, and what was going on, is heresy starts coming in. And as a result of that, all these believers got together. You have uh, the Council of Ephesus, the Council of Chalcedon, uh, the Nicene Creed. All of this came about. All of this, the goal of it was to explain how the Father, the Son, and the Spirit relate to one another. How they are three yet one. They saw it as important because heresy was coming within the church. It wasn't something that was just for the classroom for these people. And it shouldn't be something that's just for the classroom for us. 
These men, as a result of these councils, many of them lost their lives standing up for truth. They were willing to give up their life for how much, how important they saw this doctrine. This is not something that is light. This is not something that is all theological, something that is not important. This is something that we should devote our lives to. When, when we pray, I mentioned this before, when we pray, we pray a Trinitarian prayer. prayer. You start off, Heavenly Father. You always hear people start off prayers that Heavenly Father. Then who do they pray for forgiveness? They go to Christ. Who then applies that? The Spirit. You're praying by the Spirit. All persons of the Trinity are involved in our prayers. When you baptize a believer, you baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we saw Roy, he is baptized into the triune God, which literally just means um, three in oneness. You have this aspect, the triune God. It is important. Our salvation is accomplished through the Trinity. The Father sends the Son to die for our sins. So you have the Father sending out of His love. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He sent His Son. The Father sends the Son out of love to die for our sins. It wouldn't be enough just for the Son to die for us. We need the Spirit to apply that benefits to our life. So our salvation is Trinitarian. You have to have the Father You have to have the Son. You have to have the Spirit. And as early as Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, we see all three persons of the Trinity at work. And it does matter to your life. It very much is applicable. When we pray, when a person's saved, when they're baptized. Next, I want to show how Moses... I want to look at this and see how Moses views the different persons in the Trinity and their role. Notice that the Father initiates. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, over and over, and God said, the Father is very much involved and He's significant. And in chapter 2, we'll see that even more. When He uh, repeats the creation story, but He says, Yahweh created. Next, the Son is in the creation process. Notice how it says that God spoke. And John, John describes it this way, in the beginning was the Word. Who is the Word? And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And he says, the Word then becomes flesh and dwells among us. Who is this? It is, not, it is the Son, the eternal Son. Arius, an early, church, an early person within the church, came up with this heresy, and he says that there was a time where the Son did not exist. But John tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word here becomes flesh. That also is important for us here, because by, by the Word of God, all came into being. God speaks and creates the entire universe. What's that tell us about the importance of God's Word? If you want to see life, if you want to create life, if you want to see the Spirit work in your life, devote yourself to this Word. Psalm 1 says, 
The one who, uh, who meditates upon God's word day and night, it's as if he is a tree planted by the water. And he flirt, uh, produces fruit day and night. It's helpful here to actually know what the word Eden means. We're talking about the Garden of Eden here. We're starting to get into this section. Eden literally means well-watered and fruitful. Why is that important? Because the one who meditates upon God's Word day and night, he is well-watered, he is fruitful, he produces fruit in season and out of season. I think what the psalmist is trying to say is, when you meditate upon God's Word, even though sin is still present in, in the world, when you meditate upon it, when you dwell upon it, when you memorize it, when you preach it to yourself, It's as if you've returned back to the garden and once again, you're in the presence of God for a brief moment in time. It's as if sin has been defeated and you are in the presence of God and He can speak freely to you. Meditate upon God's Word. I had an incredible opportunity while I was in seminary once. Uh, A lot of people may not know who this person is, but Steve Lawson. I um, had a buddy who, uh, his dad was on staff at Steve Lawson's church and um, had an opportunity. He says, hey, do you want to go on spring break and go down and uh, have dinner with Steve Lawson and hang out with him? He's a, in the biblical world, the man is a great scholar. He's written a lot of commentaries, a lot of books, um, a lot of thick books, um, credible preacher. Uh, John MacArthur at one point, actually, if you've heard of John MacArthur, John MacArthur asked him if he would take over uh, Grace Church and all, I'm sorry, the seminary and the college, Grace College and um, uh, Masters, uh, I'm sorry, Masters College and Grace Seminary. So he asked him at one point if he would take over this. So this man's a, a theological giant. He he knows his word, incredible, humble man. So we got to sit down and eat with him. And I, I, the opportunity was incredible. So I was like, I would love to go and meet this man just to to rack his brain, ask him some questions. And we discussed a lot of things. He took us to McAllister's, and he's like, what do you guys want to talk about? So we sat down, and one thing, several things stuck with me from the conversation. But one thing he said really stuck in my brain, and it's something that I, I, I honestly believe. He says, you'll never grow as high as your knowledge of Scripture. And what he meant by that is, our knowledge and devotion to Scripture is going to be the cat. You'll never grow past that. You'll never grow past how much you know in Scripture. And what he's getting at is, it's vitally important for believers to get to know God's Word. The way that you're going to grow spiritually is through knowledge of God's Word and living out God's Word. You're never going to grow past spiritually your knowledge of God's Word. That's going to be the cap. That's going to be the, the, the lid that you'll never get past. So the more and more you know, the more and more you can grow. And I think that's what the psalmist means when you devote yourself to God's Word, when you meditate upon it, when you preach it to yourself. All too often we preach at people, but we forget the Scriptures are there for us. It's not just learn the Bible so I can tell him he's wrong. No, we need to dive into Scripture and preach it to ourselves. When you have doubts... When you're wondering, are you saved? Preach to yourself truths from Scripture. God has said this. I know I'm feeling this way, but it is wrong. God's Word is greater than my feelings. That same Word that creates life there, creates life in our souls. That same Word builds up. It builds us. It creates us. Are you devoting yourself to God's Word? God's Word. 
men, as we're, as we're coming upon Father's Day, I'd be wrong if I didn't address the issue of fathers. Are you leading your family in God's Word? Men are called to be the spiritual leaders of the home. Charles Spurgeon once said this. You hear me quote him quite a bit. Um, Jeremy's probably worse than I am. Both his kids are named after him. <laughs> so, um, but Charles Spurgeon once said this, is that if every man in the church would pick up his Bibles, you could, it would create an entire dust storm if he'd pick it up off their, off their bookshelves. It would cause a dust storm as a result of it. May our Bibles not collect dust. May we get wear in their pages. Fathers, you've been given the role to lead your family as Christ leads the church. You are representing Christ to your families. Don't take that job lightly. Maybe you don't have children yet. Maybe you're not even married yet. My mentor used to say this. All the time guys say, as you're looking for a spouse, I'm really wanting a Proverbs 31 woman. I'm really wanting this woman who signifies and and depicts Proverbs 31. I'm really wanting that Proverbs 31 woman. If you don't know what I'm referring to, read the chapter. It will humble you. Especially if you're looking for a spouse. If you're looking for a spouse, go to that chapter. But my mentor says this. Men, if you really want, as you're thinking about future Father's Day, if you really want a Proverbs 31 woman, you need to first be a Proverbs 1-30 through 30 man. Start devoting yourself to Scriptures now so that when it's time for marriage, when it's time for children, you can lead your family. You can be the spiritual mentor, the spiritual leader for them. Now, what's the role of the Spirit? We saw the Father, we've seen the Son, and we'll see the Father more in chapter 2. But what's the role of the Spirit? Notice what he says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What is this hovering? What's the significance of this hovering? The word, the Hebrew word there is actually fluttering. It's like a bird. He's hovering. He's fluttering like a bird over the waters. So we see the Spirit hovers over the first creation. Deuteronomy 32.11 says this, Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing with them on its pinions. So there we see God is described as an eagle that stirs up his nest. He flutters once again. So there we see the, the Spirit working we see, that, we see God described as in bird language, if you want to think of that, and fluttering is what He's described as doing. It's very interesting also, all the bird language that's used to describe God. And I think it, it's significant, especially His Spirit. Um, Noah, God destroys the entire earth, completely makes it new. It's as if, so sin fills the earth, and rather than the earth being filled with God's glory, it's filled with sin, so God destroys the earth, and He starts over, and then Noah's given the same command as Adam to be fruitful, multiply. It's as if God is starting over. And just as a bird hovers over the waters at first creation, Noah sends a dove out over this new creation, and it flies over creation, and it never returns. Even more significantly, this, this theme's carried on even further. 
When Jesus' baptism, the firstborn of the new creation, all the time you hear me talk about we are a new creation in Christ. We are made new. It's as if God is recreating the world through believers. We are a new creation. The firstborn of new creation was Christ. And what happens when He's baptized? The Holy Spirit comes down upon Him like a dove. Over and over again, we get this theme of the Spirit working in creation, creating everything new. That is true as well. He was in the original creation. He's involved in the new creation. He's also involved when He recreates us and makes us new in our lives. When the Spirit comes upon us, Joel speaks of the Spirit being poured out upon us. He makes us new. Next, the Spirit overcomes the darkness and the chaos and brings structure. Don't don't look past this point. This is very significant because it starts off and it's chaotic. It starts off and it's dark. There's a void. What does the Spirit do? He takes the darkness and He overcomes it with light. He takes the chaotic and He brings structure to it all. That's how He works with us as well. If you look at this, it's kind of interesting how the days parallel. It shows how the Spirit's taking what was created and bringing form and structure to it. Day one, the heavens and the earth are created. Day three, He fills the lights in the heavens. Day two, the waters in the sky are created. Day four, the birds and the animals fill the earth. Day five, the land and the vegetation are created. Day six, the animals and the humans then fill that land and vegetation. This is all followed by the conquering king resting. He creates it, then he overcomes the chaotic and brings structure There's darkness. He overcomes the darkness with light. He conquers it. It's a ruling king taking over these things. And it's all followed by God sitting on His throne and resting. What's this mean to us? I don't want us just to think of theological, uh, this is just head knowledge that we're getting, but what's this actually mean to our lives? How can this actually relate to us? I know what it meant to them, but what's it mean to me? Is your life chaotic? Do you struggle to get everything organized? Do you, do you find yourself stressing out because you can't get a hold of life? Do you have darkness in your life that you long for it to be overcome? We're called to be, as a church, a city on a hill. We're a, we're a light to a dark world. When we look at the Charleston situation, we see the darkness of sin. Where do they find hope? In the conquering king who overcomes darkness with light. Where do you go when you need structure? When you need for someone to overcome the chaos of your life? Run to the God who brings order. Run to the God who brings peace. Who overcomes darkness with light. Run to the God who gives you rest. Come to me, all you are heavy laden, and find rest, is what Jesus says. Maybe your life is really difficult. Maybe you're in a tough time in life. Maybe you're in a busy season of life. Run to Jesus and find rest. Doesn't mean that 
all your difficulties will go away. It means God will give you wisdom how to live through the midst of it all. He will give you comfort in the midst of it all. Another thing about Charles Spurgeon, a lot of people don't know, we all call him the Prince of Preachers, but he also struggled with depression. The reason he struggled with depression was um, his fame got bigger and bigger and bigger, and he was at one point preaching to 20,000 people without microphones. Um, That's unbelievable. And... One neat thing about him, or one, uh, the, the thing, one of the things that kind of changed, you can actually see in his ministry, um, that really impacted his ministry, was a terrible situation that occurred at his church. When we think of Charleston, this is a similar story. So, he's preaching without microphones, this is before fire alarms come about, and Charles Spurgeon's preaching, he's up there, um, there's actually one story of him doing a sound test, he's uh, he's speaking with his voice just to see if the echo goes out and the man gets converted to Christ Why he's doing a sound test. Um, so just a phenomenal man, incredible story. But one day he's preaching to this large congregation and a man runs into the church and screams fire. And as a result of this, causes everyone in the congregation to panic. There was no fire. But everyone in the congregation panicked. And they all tried to get out at the same time. And a man lost his life in the midst of this. What, what seemed to be whoever this person was, a cruel joke, ended up costing a person his life. And Charles Spurgeon, after that, really struggled with depression because he saw his fame as, as the reason this person was put to death. But, in the midst of this all, where did Charles Spurgeon go? This is when he wrote, he wrote a three-volume series, a commentary on... Uh, the Psalms, called the Treasury of David. And Spurgeon found his hope in the Psalms. They reminded him of the sinfulness of sin. They reminded him of the hope of redemption. That the God who gives comfort and peace, the God who takes the chaotic and brings structure, the God who overcomes darkness and gives light, that's where you find comfort in the midst of this. It's the God who is in control. You don't find comfort in a God who didn't see this coming. You don't find comfort in a God who was not in control of everything. Another story which is very similar, we've spoke about it before, is uh, Nate Saint, I'm sorry, Steve Saint, uh, Roger Udarian, Jim Elliott. And uh, interesting enough, Elizabeth Elliott, Jim Elliott's wife, recently, uh, within the last week, passed away. But they go and they want to share the gospel with this tribe, and they, they go and they fly their plane around, and they drop food off for this people. Over and over again, they're dropping food because this, this tribe has never heard the gospel. So over and over again, they, they fly by and they drop food, and they're hoping, that, and supplies, and they're hoping that the people over time see that they're not an, an, an aggressive people. They're not wanting to hurt them. Or they're there to give them food and to help them. And they're hoping this would give them an opportunity to share the gospel. But what happens? The first time they land their plane, they all get speared to death. And you may be starting to wonder, where's God in the midst of that situation? These men were trying to share the gospel, just like the people of Charleston. They're gathering together to study God's Word. Nothing mean going on there. They're there to glorify the Lord. And you may look at their story and say, you know, it's a terrible tragedy. God wasn't in control. But we don't know the end of the story. Just like Nate Saint, Steve, I'm sorry, Steve Saint, Jim Elliott, and Roger Gudarian, 
If you only looked at that part of the story, you wouldn't get a full picture. What happens later is, Nate Saint's, Steve Saint's son, Nate, and his aunt go back to this people and they share the gospel and the entire village is converted to Christ. And now Nate Saint travels around with the man who speared his father to death and they share the gospel together. We may not know why God did this, but know He's in control and He is good. We may never have the answers why, but know that He's good and trust Him that He can receive greater glory from this, that He was in control, and we have nothing to fear. Now let's go to this last part. Then God said, Let us make man in our own image after our own likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in His own image. In His image He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This phrase is going to be extremely significant as we go through the book of Genesis. So don't, don't pass over this be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and think it's not significant. So let's keep going. And God said, Behold, I have given, I have given you every plant yielding seed on the face of the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit, and you shall have them as food. And to every beast on the earth, and every bird in the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath, I have given you, every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything He made, and behold, it was very good. Man has a special place in the creation order. Nowhere do we see that angels were created in the image of God. Man has a special place. We're created in the image of God. Everyone holds the image of God. Although sin distorts that image, we all still hold and remain true to that image. We can see, we can see signs of grace from the image of God. When, even though you see a terrible person, you may look at an Adolf Hitler and think, this man is terrible, he's done terrible things. But the man's still created in the image of God and we can still see signs of grace even in his own life. There's stories of him tucking in little girls before bed and giving them a kiss and reading them a bedtime story. Or if you ever have a chance, Google his paintings. The man was a prolific painter. It's so odd to see how terrible the things he did and how he could even sleep at night. And yet in the same sense, he would be tucking little girls into bed reading them bedtime stories. Or he would paint such a beautiful painting. You would look at it and be amazed that such a terrible person who did terrible things could show even something, create something so beautiful. That even in the midst of tragedy, we can still see the beauty of God. We can still see God working in the midst of these terrible things. That nothing is devoid of the image of God. And that one day, even as, as, as a church, let's think about this. As a church, Christ is the image of the invisible God. And He is creating us new. He is calling us to reflect that image to the world. He is calling us to show them that image. Everyone contains that image, but they deny that it comes from God. And Christ calls us, and God calls us to take the image of God to the world. We're called to reflect God, His character. We're called to reflect His love. This Charleston church is reflecting the image of God by showing forgiveness, even when the person doesn't deserve it.
We are called to take that image, that love, that beauty, and to show the world what it looks like when God rules the world. What's it look like when Christ rules a person's life? I'm supposed to show the world that. What's it look like when when Christ rules my marriage? I'm supposed to show the world that. What's it look like to be a father on this Father's Day? I'm supposed to show what it looks like when Christ rules a father's life. We're not going to be perfect images of the Father. but We're supposed to be an image that shows the world that Christ is redeeming it. He has defeated sin. And one day will rule over all things in a sin-free world. That's what it looks like to live a Christian life. is to show the world what it looks like with Christ reigning over it. To be an image of that reality. Are you reflecting that reality today? Is that a reflection of your life, of your marriage? As a parent... As a worker, are you reflecting that in your workplace? Are we declaring from our lives that Christ created all things? Are we resting in the Creator? That's what I think Moses is calling us to, to remind us that God created all things, and in Him we find rest. He overcomes evil with good. He overcomes darkness with light. He overcomes chaos with structure. And we too are called to live that out. I'm going to ask all of you if she'll come up and we're going to have a time of response and then go into the Lord's Supper.